Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Crepia, and he is Aaron Fentress. And we've uh, it's been off for a moment, uh, for a while. A few, a few things have been developing, uh, stories and uh, obligations and etc. Both on the uh, college sports front, NBA front. Uh, boy, anything going on with the? Uh, not that we're gonna, you know, totally sidetrack, but I know Aaron's been <laughs> awfully busy. Uh, with uh, with things on the Blazers front uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, there's been some draft stuff, but you know. I'm and a, a potential I'm ownership uh, situation yeah, as potential well. Ownership. Yeah, I think that's going to drag out for a few years, though. I'm mostly looking forward to the draft. So, point is, there's been a few things on the on the docket, uh, proverbially and literally. So, as a result, uh, we've been uh, away from doing the podcast for a moment. But uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't things to discuss uh, or issues going on, both for Oregon, for the Pac-12, for college football and college sports in general. Uh, it is that time of year. It is basically the talking season, uh, which we are almost wrapped up with, basically, now that everybody's had their spring meetings. Uh, The Pac-12 had theirs about a month ago, uh, just over a month ago. The SEC had theirs last week. I was there for a couple of days, and you say, well, why did you go all the way down there? Well, one, I would have been at the Pac-12s if not for uh, the Doug Brenner trial, which we'll touch on momentarily uh, and briefly. Not the specifics, but about an aspect of that that actually ties all this together. Uh, But because of that, uh, I didn't go to the Pac-12, so I went to the SECs because of Lanning, because of half of Oregon's coaching staff having connections to various coaches in the SEC, because of Bo Nix, because of all these various policy matters uh, and discussions that are being had uh, at the conference level and NCAA level that have effects on the Pac-12, uh, even if they're being led by uh, some individuals, administrators, commissioners, what have you, uh, elsewhere in, in college sports. So as I say, uh, that is where we'll kind of touch on a variety of topics today. Uh, and we'll start with one discussion point that ties together with both, like I say, the PAC, it, how it focuses on the Pac-12, but how it could actually be impacted by, uh, chiefly, the SEC. And that is we are back. If, if ever there was an indication we're in June and July, this is it. Uh, eight versus nine games for the Pac-12. Uh, the the Ugh. perpetually unresolved issue uh, for this conference of what is best, eight versus nine, and what is the future, eight versus nine, and what should the models be within either one of those uh, situations. So, uh, again, the, the never-ending cycle that is. Um, this is, uh, I realize that, for, but yet this is for fans. This is something that people are passionate about. They are quite dug in on this matter, <laughs> I will say. Um, so... 
Uh, all right, Commissioner uh, Fentress. Uh, <laughs> if the Pac-12 was making a change. You go 11. You go 11. Oh, you go 11. Everyone plays everyone once, and you get one other game out of conference. You can do whatever you want with. That's how you do it. Period. I don't know any conference going to that extent yet. Yet. Now, in a... <laughs> In a you asked me if I was commissioner, what I would I, do. That's I, I would think do. there is a possibility of such things in, say, the mid 2030s. <laughs> <laughs> the mid 2030s. And I'm not even Were being you, hyperbolic. Wait. Oh, you're not? Okay, that wasn't even no. a joke. My bad. No. I think in the mid 2030s, when <laughs> uh, the Big that. Ten and the SEC uh, have their gravitational pull uh, expand even further, potentially. Okay. That uh, when you expand from 16 or 14 schools to, I don't know, let's just call a number like 18 or 20 schools. It'll well, be professional by then, though. Straight up, won't it? But mid-2030s, it'll be professional. Well, again, whatever, whatever we're called. Well, again, however we designate college versus yeah. professional is is arbitrary at this point with, with NIL. And, that's, and we'll get to that as well because that's a major talking point these days, uh, an issue. But... I don't think we're going to get to 10 and 11 conference games until we get to leagues being so vast that they have the volume of teams to require it. You don't play 11 conference games with a 12-team league uh, when you only have a 12-game season. I wouldn't be opposed to it. Philosophically, why, I why not? Play, play all 11 because why play not? everybody and then just play one non-conference. Why? Why not? Because if you're Notre Dame or, UU or Stanford, uh, uh, not Notre Dame. Excuse me. If you're USC or you're Stanford, you're playing Notre Dame. So then you're you have no scheduling uh, uh, latitude at all. It's just dictated to you. That's my point. Like everyone has their little things, and it screws it up. The bottom line is the the most logical way to do this to make it fair and right is to play eleven. But that's never going to happen. But you asked me my fantasy. If I was the commissioner, that would be the fantasy. As far as eight and nine, I don't even care. Eight, nine, seven doesn't matter. It's going to be. You're going to create a situation where someone's going to have an easier schedule than someone else. It's inevitable, well, and there, and then, and then a situation where okay, well, well this team's seven and two, and that team's eight and one, but the team that was seven and two lost to a seven and two team, and the team that was eight and one didn't play that other team, and so it's not a fair, equitable schedule. And then who who makes it to the championship game? It's just going to that's going to happen eventually, I think. But it is what it is. So. You just accept it and move on. They they believe right now in talking to uh, Commissioner Klyovkov the other day, and uh, and I'm going to have stories on this in the days ahead. Uh, hopefully, starting this afternoon, uh, we're, we're recording on Wednesday uh, mid uh, morning here, so you'll be hearing us uh, right around when I either will have a story or we'll be having a story in the not too distant future uh, on a variety of these topics. And one is uh, yes, on the scheduling front, having spoken to. Uh, Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyovkov, uh, specifically, and and to Washington State Athletic Director Pat Chun and Oregon's Athletic Director Rob Mullins about the scheduling topic specifically. First, moving and changing the conference championship game, championship game selection criteria and getting away from divisions, that makes sense. I'm not against that. That's fine. I, I have no qualms about that at all. Uh, I understand why it makes sense for the Pac-12 specifically. But it makes sense to me for any league. That's okay. That's that's fine. I you know I I, I don't think I didn't I was never married to the concept of divisions in the first place. To me, you didn't need them. If you had them, great. If you didn't, cool. Um, the SEC was certainly the most tradition based by that 
but at the same time, they had only really gone to that model uh, in the size and expansiveness in the 90s anyway, you know, because the, ch- the championship game itself hadn't existed for forever. So let's not make it like this sacrilegious thing to change. So if you go with a one division system, regardless of the number of games, and you just take the top two teams by standing, well, then fine, that's, that's, that's okay. What the conference's position is, at least for the remainder of the current playoff cycle, uh, obviously the 2022 schedules are all set. That's not changing. So they're still going to be division-based, even though they're not picking division winners. But for 23, 24, and 25, the remaining years of the current playoff format, the current four-team format, the conference's position is it would still best serve the conference to play eight conference games, even though they have a nine-game schedule that has already been by cycle the opponents are set, not necessarily the exact sequence and and dates and everything, but they know who they're going to play when for the next several years. They are still examining whether to change that as soon as next season, 2023, and for 23, 4, and 5, with no commitment as to whether or not that will stay that way in 26 going forward because they don't know the playoff format. Now, it becomes a circular argument because you go, all right, well then the SEC is talking about when they add Texas and Oklahoma going to a nine-game schedule. So after all these years of all this bellyaching and griping from the Pac-12 in particular, led by the Pac-12, the flag bearer of grievances that the SEC and ACC are just, you know, they've gaming the system by only playing eight conference games. They're making it so easy on themselves. Right. You know, boy, LSU and Alabama, they weren't actually the best teams those years, and Clemson really wasn't that good. It was just because they didn't have to play that additional league game. That would have that would have been the thing that tripped them up. You know, Joe Burrow, he wasn't really that good. Bryce Young, he wasn't really that good. And uh, everybody at Clemson, when they won their championships, no, that defense wasn't that dominant. No, no, it would have been the ninth conference game that would have tripped them up. Now you have that league saying, oh, well, not only are we going to add Texas and Oklahoma, when we do it, we're going to go to probably, they haven't definitively said it, but they're probably headed to a nine-game schedule. And that's going to start in 25, because that's when Texas and Oklahoma join. And then the Pac-12 is talking about potentially being down at eight games. That is is that, the, is that, that is irony and hypocrisy at its Is that hypocrisy? Finest. Is that what they call that? But I understand their position (laughs) that in the short term, going down to eight might best serve them. However, let let me ask you this though, real quick. So, so if they go to eight, what are they going to do with that extra game? Are they going to try and schedule a power five? That's where I'm going. Right. So, what do you do as opposed to scheduling Portland State? Right. So that's the point. Is all right. So now that's what I'm getting at. So all right. So if you want to go to eight, say you do. Okay. Cool. Snap your fingers. Tomorrow the Pac-12 announces 23 to 25. We're got an eight game schedule. Okay. Regardless of what your format within, we'll get to that in a second. We got an eight game schedule. Okay. Who are you filling the schedule with when, when we're talking about games that are in quite literally, in some cases, 15 months? I mean, how, how are you, how, what what are you doing? Um, So in very quickly (laughs) by what is publicly available, uh, jotting down some of what is available out there. In 24 and 25, this actually could be, and they want to try and, uh, obviously, as, as you might suspect, uh, they want to try and fill these with their, quote-unquote, alliance partners in the Big Ten and ACC. Now, in 24 and 25, they could largely do this. 
especially in 25. They could largely fill, based on what's already scheduled, because, for example, uh, Washington State is playing Wisconsin in 23 already, or Oregon State is playing Purdue in 24 already. Ohio State and, and Washington have a series in 24 and 25 already. So there are things that already exist. Colorado has one with uh, Georgia Tech in 25. So there are some games and series that already exist. But there's not a ton in 23 that are available, as you might imagine. In 24, there are some. In 25, there are quite a good number. There are. They could pretty much get there. Uh, if if they manage to marry up every single one, and I might have a follow-up story on like what exactly the, the possibilities would be within to do that. But in 24... They'd probably have to fill some with some openings that exist in the current or future Big 12, uh, potentially. In 23, I don't know how they would get there. Because in 23, the openings that I've found, and I'm not saying I found them all, because I'm going by what's publicly available, and that doesn't mean anything necessarily, because there could be some that are tentatively scheduled that just haven't been formally announced, or some that haven't been officially announced but are, but are nevertheless contracted. There are not a ton of, of Power 5 teams out there with openings. As you might imagine, we're talking about 2023. We're talking about, you know, like I just said, 15 months from now. <laughs> like This is not, not going to be a lot of openings. You got, you know, you're more likely to have a series scheduled 15 years from now than an opening uh, 15 months from now. So are there some openings? Yeah. Uh, by, by what's publicly available and out there, it, there are openings that appear to be at – Pittsburgh, Miami, Georgia Tech, Northwestern, and Central Florida, who is not part of the alliance, obviously, but would be potentially moving to you know the Big 12 uh, rather quickly, in 23. But in 24, that list grows, like I say, significantly. There are some games that already exist, like Colorado and Nebraska, like I mentioned, Oregon State, Purdue, Ohio State, uh, Washington. Those exist, but then they would just have to fill also with an ACC game. Just because they have a Big Ten game doesn't mean they don't. What Klyovkov wants to get to, he reiterated this to me on Monday, was they want to get to a place where they are playing eight conference games, two alliance games, and two purely discretionary, you do what you do, whether that's two group of five, a group of five and an FCS, that's up to each school. That's the ideal world. But as he has said, as you have said, as everybody's pointed out, yeah, but everyone's locked into contracts for so many years out. Ludicrous as that might be, no one's just collectively throwing out a decade's worth of contracts in order to wedge back in some meetings with Big Ten and ACC teams. If you've already got contracts set up for years and years and years ahead. So how that would actually work in the short term, I don't know how feasible that is. It sounds great. It sounds fun. Can teams just do swapping and changing and say, hey, we were going to try and schedule this team. Can we move this contract? Yeah, you might be able to move. Because maybe two teams who are going to play each other might want to scrap sure. their game mutually and then schedule something else. Sure. There's definitely the opportunity to move for sure and, and slide some things around. But for example, uh, for looking at Oregon specifically, Oregon's got a bunch of big 12 opponents lined up for the next several years. They don't have an ACC or a Big Ten team on the schedule until 2029 when they play a home-and-home with Michigan State, and then they have the rescheduled, and well, at this point, it's just new 
home and home with Ohio State in 2032 and 33. But they've got the Texas Tech series, Oklahoma State, Baylor. Those are all on the docket, and that's coming up in the years ahead. And that's fine. But if we're talking in hypothetical land here, if the Pac-12 dropped to eight conference games for 23, 4, and 5 at the least, they would have an additional opening. Well, who are they adding? Is it a home-and-home with somebody? Highly unlikely, because even if someone has an opening in 24, it doesn't mean they have an opening in 23 or 25 to correspond. Doesn't make any sense to do it with that given opponent. Or are we just doing one-offs? Um, and are, are there enough, like I say, from a feasibility standpoint, for everyone in the Pac-12 to do this, uh, to marry up with everybody who they're looking to do it with from a home-and-away standpoint? Because like I say, there are some who have, for instance... And I know this is this is really going to get you, you know, your your ticket. You're going to be glued to the couch for this one, Aaron. I understand. <laughs> but Rutgers has an opening in 24 and 25 based on what's publicly available. Mm-hmm. Well, who is going to play the home and home with Piscataway, New Jersey, outside <laughs> New York City, who recruits what East Coast kids in the Pac-12? Who? Who's doing it? And by the way, who, in, for, for Rutgers purposes, is going to find of any value to play a team from the Pac-12 to where that makes sense for them? Unless they're going to open up Southern California. But you think, what, USC is going to play Rutgers? I mean, come on, stop. You know, is UCLA going to sign up for that one? I mean, that'd be, I you know, that. of all the ones to sign up for, that wouldn't exactly be the most desirable. I'll say that. Right. Uh, if you're Arizona... I think Arizona Rutgers actually makes sense from a competitive standpoint at the moment. I do. And I think from a, a, a recruiting standpoint, it potentially could make sense for each side. It could. Jed Fish is, you know, uh, a, a coach briefly, obviously, in, in the Northeast area with New England and stuff like that. And I think could probably best serve to expand horizons even outside of Arizona's footprint or SoCal's footprint. Uh, but with that, that, Rutgers was obviously going to largely recruit its area, but if it could expand anywhere on the West Coast, it would be either Southern California or Arizona. So I could understand it. But having said that, that doesn't mean it's the cure-all. doesn't mean it's the only thing. And again, Arizona already has a series with Kansas State in those seasons. And that's Big 12, not, you know, Alliance. So like I say, there's, there's not a perfect solution for any of this uh, by any, to do it in the short term. In the long term, if after 26, if with the SEC almost, I mean, it's like 90%, in, in my opinion. I, I do not see the SEC staying at eight games. If the SEC goes to nine games and the Pac-12 goes down to eight after 2026, that is so absolutely ludicrous. That would be, I, I don't see the value in that at all. I don't understand. I don't understand what the move of that would be at that point. In an expanded playoff, when the SEC is going to nine and playing at the top of the at the top of that conference playing multiple power five games there if they go to nine if they flip the switch to nine tomorrow which again it's not off the table they could do it in the not too distant future there are some teams in the sec who would be playing exclusively power five schedules in the 2020s in some years florida georgia a couple of them have ones now they admit they probably have to move some things around on their front and this does believe it or not to circle it back to and connected to the Pac-12, would have fallout 
in the Pac-12 if the SEC does go to nine games, not just in terms of, oh, does the Pac-12 play eight or nine or what do they do and this, that, the other. No, it would have legitimate fallout and that it could lead to movement of some Pac-12 series with SEC teams because the SEC teams are probably not going to play a 12-game Power 5 schedule if they move to nine games. There is no team in the BCS or playoff era who played an exclusive power conference schedule. (laughs) It doesn't exist. So as much as everybody wants to drive back attendance and, and get, you know, people to spend money to go back in the stadiums and everything, they all want that. But everyone admits, yeah, but you know, not to cut off your nose despite your face, you still have to actually win football games and an exclusive power five schedule. While philosophically it sounds great. I'd like it. You'd like it. Fans would like it. You have to get everybody to play by those rules, and ain't nobody signing up for that, right? Not, not right now. If we could, you know, if but if we change the playoff format to where that's rewarded correctly, well, then maybe we do. Maybe we do have the the Fentress model of of you know an eleven game. I won't, I won't go quite as hyperbolic. Eleven game Pac twelve, but twelve game power conference schedule. I'd like it. I wouldn't mind it. It should at least be 11. I'll give everyone one, you know, patsy. I, if it means the, the game, increased one, dissolution of the right FCS game. games, I'm all for it. Again, I've, I've long said those games serve no competitive uh, or economic. Uh, uh, well, no no competitive purpose. They serve only a purpose to subsidize FCS football. I, well, there's, there's value in having that game where you know you're going to win. It's a live opponent and you can... One, play a lot of people to work on some things. And that's why preseason games in the NFL help a team get better. So I'm, I'm all for that one time. But, you know, that year that, that Oregon played Bowling Green, Portland State. and Well, <clears> again, they were supposed to San play a and and they got things. No, no, I know. I know. I'm not blaming. I'll, yeah. I'll never. Oregon has always been pretty aggressive, like in trying to schedule people. And there's the stories of the past, how like people refuse to come to Austin after Oregon upset Michigan and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll never yeah. disparage Oregon. The 18, the 18 year was a very bizarre but, year because but I'm of just saying, the cancellation. Yeah. Right. No, I know. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying when you have that type of schedule, it's like, eh. Uh, so you don't want to see that kind of thing. But I'll give people one. If you want to have one team, you know, you're going to beat by 30 or 40. That's fine for me. It's just multiple isn't good. And if, if you're going to, if you're saying to yourself, okay, we want our upper echelon teams, who have a legit shot to make noise nationally to be able to schedule a team that a win is going to matter, uh, a win over them is going to matter, then yeah, I'm, I'm kind of all for that. Because in theory, you're kind of hoping that, okay, let's say SC or Oregon, in some years they're going to be not playing a weak Pac-12 team that doesn't help them and scheduling an Ohio State, a Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there's going to be some years when they're not going to play another power in the conference, but if those two teams who didn't play in their regular season schedule are all that and end up one and two, then they're going to play. And you have added the the power five opponent that bolsters, bolsters your schedule. So that makes sense in the end. I mean, ideally, like I said, the true conference title or champion to me, you're going to play everybody. But I think if you're looking at it from a playoff standpoint, if you're, as long as you're filling that schedule, that, that extra game, that opening with a legit opponent, then I'm all for it. Because one thing that's always driven me nuts about college football is the matchups we don't get to see because of things like scheduling easy games or what have you. So I'm a, I'm down with that as long as it ends up in good matchups. Philosophically, I'd love if everybody only played – if the FCS games went away 
And I kind of, I'm, I'm not anti-FCS football. You don't misunderstand me. It's No, I know exactly what you're saying. I, it's you, just want, to me, you want competitive games. I want competitive games. Um, I actually view it through a health and safety lens. I don't view putting one team on the field with 85 players at the FBS level and another team on the field with 63 players at the FCS level as in any way, forget about on a level playing field, forget about entertaining level playing field for the 63 on the FCS sideline. I, I actually, and, and I have, oh, can I, they only suit 63 by scholarship count? Oh, okay. Yeah. They suit more than that. Well, but so, again, well, like, right? But but, again, but then there's still but there's still roster but, limits by way of no, no. By what you can actually trot on the field anyway because no, I understand. Um, but like, but again, if the FBS team is 120, but they can't actually play all 120 in the game, right? But usually, in, like when they play Oregon, you know, you get blown out, and then now backups are coming in, so then those players are going against younger kids who are probably more, or more talented, but they're younger and not quite. You know, I, I mean, I've never felt like I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I've never felt like Portland State walked away from those games completely beaten up. Yeah, but but you're looking only at the one or two with a Portland State or a Eastern Washington or maybe a Montana. Eastern Washington Montana almost State. beat up Oregon in one year. <laughs> and again, and, and again, for 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 every Oregon fan listening who wants to then obviously make the obvious connection to Washington, well, the FCS games look Washington got embarrassed last year and lost to Montana. Yeah, I, I understand, yeah. but we're talk we're, we're cherry picking the the good FCS teams from yeah. particularly from those out here in the West. How about the bad ones? Oh, yeah. Well, the year if the we want, if we want to, if we're tackling State. the issue, I'm talking about the ones where, you know, there are, there are FCS teams that get mauled, and I don't just mean by the scoreboard. I mean literally get physically mauled, physically mauled, yeah, by by FBS teams, and I don't even mean by the juggernauts, who right. who just get downright obliterated on yeah. the field. That's Got those it. are the kinds of games that I see as serving absolutely no purpose. Other than the fact they're getting some money out of it, right? But to, to the players, what 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 are the FCS players getting out of yeah. it? Yeah, they're getting a, a physical beating. <laughs> yeah, not on. They they are getting abused quite literally uh, in that in that context. That's those are the games that I see that are serving absolutely no point at all. Um, but no, that you. aside, Let me like say, this, it means though. less of those what? sorts of things. I'm all for it. If it means more FBS level and Power Five level games, all for it. Having said that, I don't see how the Pac-12 could actually drop to eight after an expanded playoff field gets established, especially with the SEC more likely than not going to nine games. That to me, no. What about this though? Okay, but the SEC is adding Texas and Oklahoma. Yeah, right. So that's two major programs from the Mm -hmm. Big Twelve. So them going to nine almost seems like it has to happen, and so to a point, the Pac twelve isn't the Pac twelve isn't adding teams, mm-hmm. but if they're going to go to eight and then schedule out of conference tough teams for the because I mean at the end of the day we care most about the the contenders right, so if the contenders are able to schedule more uh, power five legitimate opponents. Then for the upper echelon of the conference, it's going to make sense, doesn't it? Hypocrisy or not? Like, let me, like, like, what do you think this all means for Oregon? How's how, what's how's Oregon going to operate within these new rules? I think they're going to go out and be like, we're going to try and definitely. Oh, they've schedule already, like you said, they've been scheduling aggressive already. The, the thing yeah, is, is if you if you operate under the assumption that they're staying team. at nine and that doesn't change, they're booked out through twenty six. Right. And have uh, three games in 28 with two in 27 and 29. 
with the presumption that in 27 and 29, that an FCS opponent, which you know I just went, we went through for five minutes how much I loathe, right. that <laughs> those would be the likely additions in 27 and 29 because they already have a, a road trips to Baylor and Michigan State, respectively, and home games with Utah State in both of those years. So the FCS game would be the game that could get added. It would be a home game, and it's just a matter of if it's FCS or, or group of five. But be that as it may. Or, or Alliance or something if they manage to pull that rabbit out of their hat. But if they stay at nine, and this would be after an expanded playoff, mind you, then maybe, maybe once and for all they actually do scrap the FCS because with an expanded playoff format, once they know it, maybe they do look to add a more aggressive non-conference game with an Alliance partner in particular because, oh, well, hey, now we know – it's an expanded playoff. Exactly how many teams? Is it eight? Is it 12? What are the criteria? How is strength of schedule valued any differently than it is valued now? Because, again, I point out, what is the SEC doing? And it's not just a matter of saying, oh, well, why are you so focused on them? Because they win, folks. That's why. <laughs> because they win. Because they win championships. They the they have, because they, they have the most the crystal balls. That's why. That's why. <laughs> That's it. That, because when they're two, when they're two national championship winning head coaches get in a food fight, it is national news. That's why. <laughs> because they are the center of the college football universe, whether you like it or not. And the only way to change it is to beat them at their own game. And Oregon and USC are the only two teams in this conference right now positioned to even attempt to do that on, an, on a, any kind of short-term or long-term basis as of today. That could change. Maybe somebody else jumps in the fray every once in a while. But at the moment... Oregon is one of those places, and USC is one of those places that can and will attempt to do that. So, when they are moving to that kind of model, potentially to nine games, and they are scheduling as aggressively as they are in what is likely going to be a expanded playoff format. Again, look, just, I, I, you know, I'm not making it up. Go ahead and take a look at what Georgia's schedules look like post-2026. Go look at what Alabama's schedules look like. Post 2026. Now, again, there's some series like they have a, a Texas or Oklahoma on there where, well, obviously they're joining the SEC, so it's a moot point. Sure. But, for example, in 2031, and I realize we're a million years out, sure. But 2030, 2031, and this is based on an eight-game SEC schedule, So, but if they drop to nine, they'd probably boot the FCS teams. Georgia has non-conference games. Obviously, they already played Georgia Tech with Ohio State – and Clemson in 2030. So don't talk to me about strength of scheduling and what and gaming the system. You see, the whole conversation to me, this is why I've always said the whole conversation in the Pac-12 about how do you do just the bare minimum to say that you had just a just a bare minimum qualification schedule to say you were legitimate enough to make the playoff. And then so you could show up and get your doors blown off. Georgia goes out there and says, oh, yeah, we're going to play uh, uh, Georgia Tech because we always do. And whether they're good or not, eh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but we'll play uh, Ohio State and Clemson in the same year. And you're going to talk to me about the strength of schedule. And that could be a year where they don't even know if they're going to play Alabama, in a, in a, uh, depending on the rotation, or Texas or Oklahoma because they weren't even scheduled at that point in the conference. I mean, come on. So that's how the SEC is approaching it. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna add Texas and Oklahoma. We're gonna say bring it on. And by the way, uh, oh yeah, we're also gonna have games where we're playing <laughs> the biggest national powers of the last decade outside of our league. Yeah, that's what we're gonna do. That's what George is doing. See, here, here's what's crazy: how, what Alabama's doing, playing Notre Dame and Ohio State, and uh, Ohio State and uh, uh, 
Yeah, you've got a Notre Dame, Oklahoma State, Ohio State, West Virginia. These are in in some of the in admittedly in one of the years they do have Arizona in the twenty early twenty thirties on the schedule. Look at what the the best teams in the country are already doing in non conference scheduling, and ask yourself, even in an expanded playoff, what actually best serves the Pac twelve in the short term. I understand if they could drop the eight and make it all work, how it could make sense and how it could help Oregon in particular, but in a expanded playoff no i don't think playing eight games makes the most sense i don't well in an expanded playoffs are we talking eight six or eight what are we talking about here expanded playoff format yeah i think we're talking about eight or twelve probably eight or twelve so probably now if if they go to 12 isn't it less important to worry about your strength of schedule just win your conference you're in or go 11 and one well we haven't established the automatic qualifier conversation that's one of the holdups well, but I we, think if we go to 12, I think this move, I think this move to change the championship selection criteria, which was sponsored a, a change, a proposal was brought forth by the Pac-12, who tweeted out their change like six minutes after it was formally decided, because they had sponsored it, and it was unanimously approved by every other conference for that matter. But they led the charge on it that this is not just good for the short term, but could potentially help grease the wheels a bit. Uh, in changing the automatic qualifier conversation. Because the Alliance Conference is specifically the Big Ten and the ACC. I think the Pac-12 to a degree. They do philosophically want it. I'm not sure how steadfast. Whereas the Big Ten is out. Kevin Warren has come out and said, we absolutely want an automatic qualifier. I'm not taking an expanded playoff without an automatic qualifier. And why do they want it? I don't think it's because he's so necessarily afraid that the Big Ten champion won't make it based on the top six uh, conference how, yeah, championship criteria. They, if you have 12, how could... Yeah, exactly. There's no way but the Big Ten champion is not going to make here's, it. But here's the thing. Because if it's not absolutely stipulated, then you can't bill your conference championship game as a win and you're in the playoff. That's the difference. I mean, you kind of can. I so, agree. Okay, and so that's why I say if you change the criteria for the championship game from divisions to top two based on win percentage... You one side or the other are kind of rendering the issue moot. The whole point is for those who don't want the automatic qualifier, right? Mainly the SEC, you'd say, okay, Pac 12 fan perspective, Pac 12 homer perspective. Why would the automatic qualifier be such a holdup? Why are those who are opposed to it terrible people? Okay. Well, their concern would be in a bad league or where, where division imbalance is vast. An upset in a conference title game could lead to a seven and six or eight and five conference champion getting an automatic bid. And then that team potentially getting a second playoff spot because maybe they have a really good team. So maybe you have a, a dominant, we'll put names to it, dominant Oregon plays a mediocre South Division team. South Division team pulls an upset. Okay, they get the auto bid, but Oregon was sitting there at 12 and 0. Well, now they're 12 and 1. Well, they're not going to be left out of the 12 team field. So now they're in as an at large, not as the champion. But now the third place or fourth place SEC team who's 10 and 2 or 9 and 3 just got bumped out because your automatic qualifier was some 8 and 5 luck box in a conference championship game. By changing the criteria for the conference championship game, to top two, 
you mitigate that possibility dramatically for any Absolutely. conference for the Pac-12. And again, the Pac-12 is the only one with weak division imbalance. Again, remember when the Big 12 had them, there was some. They, they largely haven't had them now. And now the ACC is, is a train wreck outside of, uh, obviously, when Clemson was going well. And they weren't even good last year. So to try and mitigate that and keep it at the top two and get away from divisions, that I think helps. It either it, it hopefully renders the issue moot. Either for those who want the automatic qualifier that, hey, what are you worried about? You're going to make it regardless. Or from their perspective, to put it to Greg Sankey and the SEC, why are you against it if we're putting our top two teams in the the hypothetical yeah. doomsday that you're you're concerned about? Rightly, in my opinion, um, gets mitigated. So, well, but what the number two team could still the number two teams could still be nine and three, right? But their point is is that they're talking about the number the division, the bad division champion being like right. seven, like and the five. year UCLA was seven and six, <laughs> right? That's what they're concerned yeah. about. Now, the that, bad that team could sense, be nine and three. Yeah, you could draw up a scenario yeah. where the bad team could be. Uh, look, if you go to a nine game conference schedule. And lose all three of your non-conference games, and then you go five and four. You could theoretically have a losing record overall, but the division champion. If you take it to the nth degree, yeah, mathematically you could make we that don't work. Want that. We don't want yeah, that. We Nobody don't, wants don't that. Want that. That would be terrible. So, <laughs> because that is possible within such a system, moving towards a different wing certainly makes some sense. And I realize we're discussing this at length, but it's the point that, well, one, it's the offseason, but two, these are this is the sort of the issues that do have to be kind of sorted out with it. But by moving to top two by win percentage within conference games, and then how many conference games do you play, it does mitigate some of these issues. So perhaps, and I'm not speaking for him because yeah, even though I was just down there talking to him, I, I, we actually didn't address this possibility. Perhaps... Sankey becomes more willing to accept the automatic qualifier criteria as long as contingent upon every FBS conference, particularly the Power Five conferences who are being awarded the, the, the auto bids, that an automatic bid recipient, that that conference is contingent upon having a conference championship game where the top two teams are playing not on divisions. I think that becomes a more palatable reality with this current with this recent change led by the Pac-12 rather than what the discussion was 6 months ago because yes, because of the concerns because the whole automatic qualifier discussion was they want it, they want to be able to build because it's a it's the biggest piece of television asset that a conference has to offer is its conference championship game that it controls. That's the biggest Single biggest thing that George Klyovkov or Kevin Warren or Jim Phillips or Greg Sankey or any of these commissioners can negotiate is their conference football championship game. If they can't guarantee to Fox or ESPN or NBC or whoever, Apple, whoever, you know, Amazon, whoever's coming into the game in the years ahead, that that is absolutely a de facto playoff game, win and you're in, implied or not implied, it has to be codified. <laughs> if it's not, then it's not the same value. It does change it. So I do get where each side comes from it. I do think it'll hopefully grease the wheels a little bit for playoff expansion and what that looks like and et cetera, et cetera. But for Oregon's purposes, to potentially make a change for 23, 4, and 5, I'm not saying anything's impossible. We all saw everything was possible in 2020. 
but man, I I just don't know how how you go about adding these. I don't I don't know. I remember when I was eight years old, I think, and I learned that the NCAA football championship was voted on. Mm-hmm. And I was eight, and I was beside myself because I was a huge NFL fan. Starting, we're still like, way ahead of those four, days. Four, four or five, and I was just like, "What? Vote? People are voting on that? That's the dumbest thing ever." So I literally have been clamoring for an expanded playoffs, <laughs> like they're talking about, for like forty six years. It's just hilarious to me that forty six years after this eight year old was just horrified while I was eating my Fruit Loops, is that I. I they're maybe now going to get to it in a few more years. It's just, it's, it's one of the reasons why I just look at college football and roll my eyes. There's so many great potential games we've lost out on over the years. Mm-hmm. You know, Washington, Miami, Oregon, Miami, um, Nebraska, what was that? Nebraska, Penn State were both undefeated. I mean, so on and so forth. But it's just funny to me. And this, like, you are, I'm so glad you are, you are into this. You obviously nail it and own it. And me, I just roll my eyes at it because it's like an eight-year-old knew this was bullshit 46 years ago. And it's still being argued and debated. And, and it's just, I just roll my eyes at it. Like, geez, Jimmy me, cry me. These, these morons just can't get out of their own way. And so I, it's, it's hard for me to even like debate it because it's all just so dumb to me. Eight games, nine games. Who plays this? Championship. Blah, blah, blah. Should Alabama lose to LSU during the regular season? And then, wait, did they lose to them twice? No, the one year they lost them once, but then they rematched, and that was the first time. That was where they changed. Yeah, they rematched and beat them, and then went, yeah, yeah. That you could rematch in a national championship, but it was only a few years separated from the Michigan Ohio State when they said, "Oh, Michigan had their chance, can't have a rematch in the national championship." Ohio right, State played Florida, right. got their doors blown yeah. off, and that started in the '06 start of the SEC dominance of power. But then, when the SEC at that point had established that dominance of power. Alabama's on the losing end. They said, oh, precedent from Michigan, Ohio State in 06? <laughs> we don't care about precedent. It's clear that Alabama and LSU are the best two teams. We'll let Alabama get another shot. They're so far and away the best two teams. And then you had the rematch from the 9-6 regular season. Alabama beat Tyron Matthew and LSU in the Superdome and off and away. One of the go. worst games ever played. And then, you know, the arguing, all, you know, starting in October, who should be in and who should. It's just like, I, how can you argue about this in October? How can you even argue about early November? Like, it's just. It's exhausting because it's also nonsensical, but I'm glad mm-hmm. you own it. Good job. Well, you seem because, to enjoy it. Because you bring back the Wayback Machine. <laughs> As I mentioned, other than the 2020 Alabama, because they, they went 12-0 and and played a, a SEC exclusive schedule and then the two games in the playoff. So they had the exception because of just the way that the scheduling happened that year. Uh, the last team. To be a quote-unquote national champion, because again, what you just said, there was no national championship game. It was the pre-BCS era. To play an exclusive power conference schedule was who? Now again, pre-BCS, so this is in the early 90s. And they were good? Obviously, yeah, they were the national champions. Wouldn't it it (laughs) be someone like Miami? Close. Florida State, Florida. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Florida State. Ninety-three, Florida State. Is that Charlie Ward? I believe it might have been. Yeah. But ninety-three, Florida State. Draft. Yeah. Okay. Ninety-three, Florida then- State was the last team to play an exclusive power conference schedule at that time. At at again at, at what we would consider a power conference schedule. Now there was the the later Florida State team came close, but they played an in a then independent Louisiana Tech. Uh, 
a, a few years later. Well, they played Kansas and Duke. I mean, does that count? By the letter of the law, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Does Washington three, State eight. and Arizona and Oregon State count in some years? Kansas was three. I mean, well, that was a conference. You have to play them. Kansas was three and eight, or Kansas was five and seven. Duke was three and eight. But you're right. They, they were still power five. Yeah. And again, a, a bygone era, but it's just the point that, like, oh, everybody should just play all exclusive, which again, 42. Your lead, your lead advocate for that is not just, you know, Aaron and I would like to see it. The lead, again, people never want to believe this, and he never gets enough credit nationally for it. Never does. But he's been consistent with it for over a decade. The lead advocate for an exclusive, the Power Five playing exclusively the Power Five, forget about FCS, that, that, he doesn't want to play the FCS, is Nick Saban. Nick Saban wanted nine games in the SEC 10 years ago. He wanted a 6-1-2 format back in 2013. He wanted... Uh, an exclusive Power 5 schedule, again, for 10-plus years. He doesn't want to play these games. He talks about it every single year that he doesn't want to play these games, that fans don't want to see these games, that players don't want to play in these games. They come, he, then do a home-and-home home with, with Oregon. Or I'm sure Oregon has called him, say, let's play home-and-home. Home. Nah, we got Chattanooga. It's a matter of fitting it into schedules and making it all work. Fitting and into other. my schedule. Well, again, I'm not making excuses. There were times where they they sca- they they canceled one. I want to say it was with Michigan State. They were came Boo. up where it was like, well, you say all these things, but then you cancel the series. So anyway, yeah, so the point is that's exactly. on the scheduling front. Again, as we've we've kind of exhaustively tackled every which facet of it. So that's one. See, of the Oregon Bama, there. Oregon Bama. See, that's that's another thing about college football. When Oregon was rolling with the, the blur offense and everything on through, like the, everyone wanted to see an Oregon Bama matchup. I think Bama would have won by a couple of touchdowns, but everyone like it was like a marquee matchup people wanted to see. It was almost like Pacquiao Mayweather and it didn't happen. Like that should have been scheduled to me. Like that's, you know, I know. I don't, it's just college football just drives me bananas because it just, it cheats you out of so many different things that should happen. But one, it one does. Quick, let me ask, let me ask a quick yeah. question. I, mean, I want to ask you this. You covered the you covered the uh, SEC. So <laughs> I I've said this numerous times, and back in the day when I said it, I just got so much heat. But Oregon won four conference championships in six years. Uh, and my thing at the time was Oregon wins zero conference championships if that if all those same Oregon teams are playing in the SEC. Do you agree? Say that again. I want to make sure I got that clear. So they won <laughs> four the out of Oregon, six. The Oregon teams, the Oregon teams that won four championships, four right. conference championships in six years and went to two national title games, mm-hmm. that those teams, any one of them, had they played in the SEC, At the time, they do yeah. not win the conference and they go like nine and three, eight and four. I'd have to look team. at the exact years to match up because, for example, the – The 2013 year that Auburn played Florida State for the title, the last BCS uh, championship year, that was a particularly poor year for the SEC as a whole because when you look back now, especially with the benefit of history, and look back at exactly who was on the teams that Auburn beat and basically how in the hell did that Auburn team beat those teams, and I watched it. Um, how in the world did that team beat some of those teams? And then, frankly, how did some of those teams and those rosters even exist in the SEC? Um, some like some of the teams in the West, in particular, outside of Alabama or LSU. LSU, I, I, it's inexplicable that LSU team wasn't better than it was. When you look at the receiving court, like uh, uh, Beckham and Landry and, and some of the running backs, that was just preposterous. Um, but 
Well, 2013, they, they Oregon didn't win the conference. Were, didn't win Pac-12. So right, and that's why I say, like, won, yeah. that's one of them where... That well, year, yeah, that's one but they were still a good team. But they were still a really good team. They were an 11-2 right, team. Until, in the, yeah. the league that year. Um, in 12, they were 12-1. and one. Uh, That would have been an interesting one. I realized, yeah, it was against a dominant Alabama team. No question about it. But again, Bama and Georgia that year were both extraordinary teams. Absolutely extraordinary teams. Um, dominant teams, but in a relative sense, because even if you look back at that Georgia team from 12, that it came within a caught pass, I think, of winning the SEC championship game. If they didn't catch the final pass of the game, I think they score on the next play and win it, and Mark Richt has a national title rather than, you know, Saban winning another one in 2012 uh, against a terrible Notre Dame team. But be that as it may, uh, to me, 2014 is the best chance because you had Buckner and Armstead. So you had two legitimate D linemen that could hold up in any conference. The other teams didn't have the line play on either side of the ball for me to believe they would have held up in the SEC schedule. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is, look, they lost to Ohio State in the national championship that year. And, of course, right. Ohio State beat Alabama in that semifinal, so, um, which was a competitive game. Uh, so you can point out, well, look no further. Uh, there's definitely some merit to that. That would have been, I think, from a purest talent standpoint, because what you're ultimately getting at is between strength of schedule, uh, strength of overall roster talent, uh, and the week-to-week nature of it. And that's the difference, um, is uh, I think. The week-to-week nature. And, and, dude, there's not one NFL running back or NFL receiver from those teams, those Oregon teams. I mean, LaMichael was there for a couple years. Kenyon's hung around as a backup punt returner, but as, as the numbers they put up, they put them up with dudes who could not play in the NFL. Well, you, you know, you're not saying that about the SEC guys who put up numbers. You know, th- all those guys are still in the NFL doing damage or at least had legit NFL careers. And then the line play, it's just, I, I mean, I don't know, man. I just don't see how behind those lines, even running that offense, LaMichael James at 195 is holding up. In the SEC or Kenyon Barner at 190 is holding the, up. The best best and chance for sure, like I say, would have been in 13 and 14 in particular since they with won Marcus, that year. Because he's such because a good maker, yeah. When when Missouri made the back-to-back SEC title games in 13 and 14, um, and they were good teams, but they were not at the level of their opponents in those games. The normal, yeah. Um, and... Yeah, theoretically, you could say, yeah, they made it through. You can't rule out the possibility that Oregon actually could have gotten through because, again, Missouri went 7-1 and one and, and was a top-15 team and, and played Alabama in that championship game, another game I was at. Um, and that, that was 14, good, you said? That was 14 yeah, or 2014, when Bama went on, lost to Ohio State in the semifinal in the Sugar, and then Ohio State beat Oregon in the championship game. Um, but the SEC championship game was Alabama and Mizzou, and Mizzou was a 7-1 Mizzou. So is it possible? Yeah. But in that entire six-year clip, how many would they have gotten? No, it wouldn't have been a lot. Because they would have been outmanned. In the earlier years, they would have been outmanned on the line. No question about it. Right. And no then the, and the other part that shows evidence of that is what Auburn did to them in the national championship. Now, that was a close game, but and that was they a totally manhandled Auburn team. And, uh, by, <laughs> by way of talent. That was a yeah, terrible Auburn, so Auburn defense specifically. It was a team led by two guys. <laughs> one yeah. who was a prodigy on at quarterback and one who was an all-world freak at defensive tackle. But if you look back at the depth right. chart of that Auburn defense, 
outside of Nick Fairley. Whew. That's not exactly then, by any, that might be the worst SEC national championship defense. Maybe ever. Wow. Interesting. Like I'm not so, kidding. But they, like, and, but they, they, they held, I think they held Oregon in like, 90 yards. I think Oregon in 90 yeah. yards rushing or something like that. And they had been averaging 300 somewhere around there. And then they come back and play LSU in Dallas to start the next season and LSU. So LSU and Auburn, obviously two upper echelon programs in that conference. You're not going to play those types of teams every week, but they completely destroyed what Oregon did best. Completely just annihilated what made Oregon, Oregon. And that was running the football for 300 yards at an amazing pace and wearing you out. So if you're shutting the running game down and you're relying on Darren Thomas to carry you, he's not a carry you kind of quarterback. He's a front running quarterback. who's going to benefit from the run game. Marcus can carry you. And that's why I think 14 had its shot. And plus you had the D linemen with Balducci and Armstead and, and Buckner who were legit D linemen who could hang up and hang, hang, you know, do their damage in any conference. But the depth behind them though, that's, that's the, that's the difference. The depth behind them wasn't even remotely close to SEC power level. So anyway, that's just always been my thing. And people get pissed at me when I say it, but I just think it's a given. No, they, they wouldn't have been, no, the, the, the bottom line is they wouldn't have been as dominant there. No question about it. But had, would they have been able to break through at all? I, I they give them a chance one. at 14. I yeah, definitely I give them a chance at 14. I agree. Um, but, but beyond that, no, in the earlier years, they would have been outmanned at the line of scrimmage. And there's just no, I mean, that's just science. That's just what, oh what God, the measurements just, say. And that's, there's no way around, no way around yeah, that. That's just to, uh, to the other <laughs> offseason topic that is quite literally taking up all the oxygen in the room. And we leave a little bit of time for this here because, uh, it is the thing that takes up so much. But at the same token, I think it's become the all encompassing, uh, acronym. You know, a year ago, we couldn't get anybody to pay attention to NIL. I couldn't, I could not force people to care or understand about NIL. Now here we are 11 months later and all anybody wants to hear about is NIL, how much players are making from NIL, how much schools are given out for NIL, why my least favorite uh, conference rival is buying all their players with NIL and how my least favorite uh, conference opponent by way of coach is cheating the system because their boosters care more about with NIL. A year ago, again, nobody really could wrap their head around it. Now it's the answer to everything. Uh, why aren't you winning enough games? Why are you where you are in the recruiting rankings? Up, Good or bad, NIL. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. Just repeat the, just the same three letters and it's the, the answer to everything. Um, and it appears to be just what's driving the conversation and everything. Um, obviously, since we didn't have the SEC level food fight between Jimbo and Nick, which was amusing, and I was there to hear the the follow up for it all, but I didn't, I don't really care to be honest. Uh, we we could use some of that in the Pac-12. I will say, could use some of that. I hope at Pac-12 Football Media Day we have a little bit of you know that that'd be fun. That'd be amusing. Hey, I don't I don't care. Let it let it fly. Good. Who I would have care. beef? Everybody. Yeah. Everybody, yeah, but there's no the whole system. There, you just have Ryan Day go out there and say they need thirteen million dollars to field a team at Ohio State. So everybody's going to be paying players. That's fine. I'm not against it. But who would have beef? Everybody. I'm, I'm please, please let let of all people, frankly, let it be Herm Edwards since he's going to be out the door. I assume anyway. Uh, let him be the one, and that's where the hypocrisy. Like for those who are at Pac-12 spring meetings, they were saying there was a, a scale of hypocrisy from Ray Anderson when he was going into the. AD's meeting saying, you know, about NIL and cheating and this and that. Meanwhile, you know, his program's under investigation for cheating the system in 20, not with NIL, but for not abiding by the uh, COVID protocols and, and illegal recruiting. But be that as it may, 
Yeah, let somebody like that. Hell, let Chip go out there and start firing off. It would make it interesting. Let 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 it fly. Good. And again, I'm not against it. I didn't have a problem with with either side of the Jim uh, the uh, Jimbo and Nick thing. As Nick said, I didn't say anybody did anything wrong. No, he just said you know they bought their players, but he didn't say I didn't say anybody did anything wrong. He meant they bought them illegally with NILs. Is what he meant. Sort of, but he, you know he didn't because he didn't verbalize it. He was able to give himself enough of a. I didn't quite accuse him. But, then, them, Jim, but, but then Jimbo basically came back and said, "Dude, you've been cheating for years." Right, and what? Right, and that's where it's like the all the what it really what that whole spat boiled down to was Jimbo made accusations that. He did not substantiate. They were far they were more accusations. Far fact, more accusations yeah, that were They're far fact. more significant than what Jim uh, than what Nick was actually yeah. saying. What Nick was saying was they bought their players. Look at how they did it in recruiting. They bought their players. Now again, this is all parsing and semantics, and a Pac-12 fan doesn't necessarily care about all this, but it does spill into some of the Pac-12 aspects with NIL because Oregon and USC are probably at the moment two of the only schools in this conference who could even generate the fan bases uh, to have collectives or directives of substance. I know Washington has one as well, but there's just not a lot of that level of fervor and uh, available resources in this conference. So in order to compete in this marketplace going forward, it's not just about the here and now. It's how do you actually try to sustain this? And that's a very interesting and complicated issue. Because merely throwing money at players and doing that, again, that's we can go back to the 80s and SMU for that. We don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not clutching my pearls about You're it. Oh, wait, you mean to tell me that players are getting paid? No way. You're kidding. I, what? No. Yeah. I mean, mm. come on, stop. So mm. players are getting, you know, now it's above board, fine. And now could still deals be having, uh, be taking place even outside that purview, even though it is legal, so there's no reason for it not to necessarily be reported. Sure, but ultimately, how whether it's transparent or not, or this or that, whatever. Put that aside. Ultimately, players getting paid. the The clutching of the pearls from those in the system is ultimately about control. Is what it's really about. Is they're losing control, losing their grips of control in an uncontrolled and largely deregulated space. And how do you define what is legitimate versus illegitimate NIL? Well, when the other team does it, it's illegitimate. When my school does it, it's legitimate. That's how everybody approaches it. Oh, we all our NIL deals, they're to the letter of the law, absolutely in the NCAA guidelines, there's quid pro quo, they're meeting their obligations, they're doing everything. Oh, them? They're spending like crazy. It doesn't even meet the definition of NIL. They're just making it all up. Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, okay. Every, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else is cheating. We're doing it all right. That's what every school in America will tell you. Okay. Fine, fine, fine. How do we go forward? What does it actually look like? What does it mean to Oregon, so to Oregon State, what, to the Pac-12? What is Oregon doing, though? Well, they have well, Division I, Street. Huh? Division Street as a yeah. entity exists, and it you procures know. and secures obviously certain uh, uh, deals that have gotten out there. Uh, you know, and it's much more on a team wide or athletic yeah, department wide even basis. Where's the big money for the big stars? Well, again, there's going to be uh, further deals facilities. probably facilitated <laughs> by um, any number of 
opportunities, whether it's through, again, I'm not going to speak for Division Street. Um, you know, I'm, I'll work on and, and certainly do some stories on what they're doing or not doing or what have you. Uh, but a lot of these collectives so far, collectives or directives, uh, they're not, you know, a lot of it is a little bit murky, in part because it's still a new space, and in part because, not for nothing, why is it everybody's business? What? How much people get? Yeah. Of course it's everyone's business. Because of, of the tabloid nature of it or because they actually deserve to know? Because if, if I'm a they don't fan deserve of a to team, know. If I'm a fan of a team and I'm paying to watch that team, I should know what's going on with the players on that team and how they're being compensated. Damn straight. Damn so straight. So do you know what Tom yep. Brady is making from Hertz? I can find out. But I don't really? care. I know what he's. You can make. What, what you I can ca- find out what Tom Brady is making you can't, for Hertz. That's not. That's information that's not there. I don't know. Is it not no. Out there? No. No. You can't find but, out what these guys are making from from their endorsement. You can find out what we, what, we when know what they're making. You cover the place. How much does Dame make from Hulu? We know what they're making from their. I'm talking about their. I'm talking player contracts. Right. I, I'm. Ta- but I'm so saying in that college football. The equivalent of that is the right. NIL. So but if, it's if not. a guy transfers from if a guy transfers from Pitt to USC. Mm-hmm. I think people are going to want to know how much that kid, that kid's making. They're going to want to know, and my argument is is that he has no obligation to tell anybody, including well, USC, no, he, including no, the NCAA, right. he including he, Pittsburgh, no, he and including anybody. He didn't have an obligation, but I'm saying that, damn, to me, obviously everyone's going to want to know because it's going to impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of this is going to adversely impact. I think college football greatly, and I think if you try and say, "Oh, we're going to keep it all secret." I think that's only going to make it worse. My thing is, is that from the player's perspective, you know, for all these coaches, administrators, conference commissioners, presidents who are clutching their pearls and freaking out and calling for regulation of some kind. And I'm not saying Congress should or shouldn't do an antitrust. That's for them to decide. You know, if you really want to delve into antitrust law and what should and shouldn't and what's uniquely an American thing and every which other thing, you can... Call up a lawyer and have your discussion, okay? Please. Tom Brady's <laughs> reportedly getting four point two million from Hertz, according that, to that was quick. That was yeah, quick. but according to and from Bloomberg, Bloomberg. Okay. I'm not, I'm not doubting the veracity of the claim. My point is, is <laughs> not that, not Joel Bloomberg from down the street. No, Bloomberg no, no. I understand, but I'm saying that there is. But the point is, is that a lot of these deals, but Dame doesn't deal with with Hulu. Some of these endorsement contracts do get out mainly because. Agents they want maybe them out, want, they? Yeah. Sometimes agents want it out, but overwhelm. I was just on the phone with an attorney yesterday who's in this space. And he fine, I'll talk, and again, I'll have a story on this with the NIL topic. These deals are riddled with non-disclosures. Now, again, if an agent wants to bring it forth, or if a player wants to bring it forth and say, This is what I got, that's great. In the public sphere, I'm not against it being in the public sphere. What I'm saying is, is that the mandate that it be in the public sphere in the guise of transparency for the system, that to me is absurd. Now, if you want to say, well, then you, you equate it to player contract topic, right? But then they're employees. Now you've collectively bargained. Now there's a union and now we're off to the races and now we're in a whole other ecosystem. And I'm, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we're talking about two different worlds in that sense. So the NIL deal. Whether it's in the traditional, as it was meant, definition sense, or the expanded, we're calling it NIL, but it's an inducement, either implicitly or explicitly. The explicit is what's against the rules. 
implicit. Now, this is where you're really getting to the parsing. This is where I say it's a little bit of a farce. The guidelines, the guidelines. We just, you know, we, we just recently had the NCAA pass these enacted things where University of Oregon President Michael Schill is on the Division One Board of Directors and Board of Governors about this. And he has concerns about it. Arbitrary enforcement, etc. But, okay. But it explicitly said you cannot use this as a recruiting inducement. Okay. Let's say even if you manage to get everybody to abide by that. And it was completely Impossible. enforceable. But it, let's just say that yeah. it was. Okay? okay. Let's live in a world where you're able to actually enforce that, get 100% <laughs> compliance and transparency in that. Where we all acknowledge... That is absolutely the total opposite of reality. Are but there let's unicorns just say, in this world? Yes, and rainbows. <laughs> okay, and rainbow. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, all all sorts of things. Okay, <laughs> let's just say that that reality exists somewhere <laughs> in, in, in you know in Earth Two in the metaverse. <laughs> okay, that world exists. Okay. All right, I'm there. I'm there what, with you. I'm there. What does I'm on it, the unicorn? He, yeah, I was going to say Aaron's got an <laughs> NFT going right now. Um, I'm on the what unicorn. in the world does it make a difference? <laughs> If it's explicit or implicit, if like Ryan Day just said, he needs $13 million for Ohio State's roster to be subsidized for the upcoming next year. What in the world does it make a difference if it's known that on on average, a player at school ABC is making $150,000, $200,000? What the hell does it matter if that conversation happens before a document is signed or after a document is signed? If the coach can say by the letter of the rule, I can't connect you to anybody, I can't facilitate a deal as of now, that'll change. But I can't do those things. But what I can tell you is our past players got X. And if X is a large enough sum of money, then what does it make a difference if that conversation has goes on directly with a member of a collective or directive? Or if it's just known that if you go there, you get it anyway. What is it really, Matt, from a practical sense? Like... What are we talking about here? Oh, well, the rule says you can't do this. All right, fine. I'll still abide by your rules, but it's known that an Ohio State players making 180 grand anyway. Well, what, what do I need the guy to tell me I'm making 180 grand if I go to Ohio State? It's the same end result. What does it make a difference? There's no change. So the point is, is that's that's where I go. Like that's a farce. That's a that's a that's a waste of time argument. And and that that's a regulatory. Uh, uh, hill to die on that makes no sense it, it, it's impractical I, I illogical and it, and I, it doesn't have any true end result change i hear you on that but back you know back to what i was saying about people knowing if if i'm a fan of a team and we're losing players to another team but we're gaining some other players from another team I, i'm gonna want to know well what the hell is going on here why they go why they leave why they have 1200 yards rushing and now they're gonna leave to go play for mm -hmm. oklahoma Mm -hmm. And then, and then, then we just got a receiver from Michigan State. Why is he coming? To, like, oh, I love the campus, and I love no bullshit. Who paid what to whom? Right. If I'm a fan, I want to know what the hell's going on. And guess what? Fair, Aaron, on, on a long enough timeline, the whole on a long enough timeline, we may learn some of these deals because the agent space will expand, and they're going to want to grow their client list, and they're going to want to get more credibility, and they're going to want some of their deals to get out there. And the schools, when the deals are really good, are going to want their deals to be known. And when the schools have really bad deals, they're going to want that to be private. Again, we do everything right. Everybody else is cheating. Our deals are the best until they're not the best. And then we don't want you to know they're the worst. That's the way it'll go. That's open and free markets. I'm all for it. I'm just saying from the player's perspective, I don't think they should have an obligation to disclose any of these things. But if they choose to disclose it or their agent chooses to disclose it, that's fine. 
In a long enough timeline, that may happen. But in terms of sustainability of all of this and where this could go without Congress stepping in and providing an antitrust exemption for college sports, uh, which is a bit of a wing and a prayer uh, effort at the moment, uh, you start to see, like, where could this go? And I was asking folks at SEC spring meetings about this, including Texas A&M's athletic director, Ross Bjork, since their collective is generating a lot of interest these days. <laughs> uh, and I asked Rob Mullins about this, and I asked commissioners about this, and et cetera, and an IL attorney about this. If it doesn't happen, then are we, you know, what does it look like in four and five years? Do some of these collectives, which a year ago didn't literally didn't exist, and the term didn't exist as we know it. The foreseeability of it for some people was like, couldn't ever foresee it. And I'm like, I was having a conversation with Oregon's compliance director about the very possibility last August. So don't tell me it wasn't foreseeable. But okay. Uh, it happened. Could these groups, as they grow in size, scale, and resource, basically become third-party endowments? outside of the control and purview of the university and athletic department. And then in which case, who can actually sustain that? What schools, what fan bases can sustain that? And the number of schools in the country who can actually make that work at the dollar figures we're talking about, when we're talking about five years out, 10 years out, what does it start to look like as a college football roster of 85 players starts to get compensated increasingly closer to NFL-like market value? <laughs> uh, there might be 10 schools, might be 10 schools, who could achieve the kind of numbers we're talking. And I'm not talking 13 million, by the way. 13 million is a drop. I'm talking 13 million is the interest on the actual number, the actual number. So then, so then, is, what we're going to get is maybe a twenty-five, forty-team upper echelon league, and then everyone else drops down to we're not doing NILs. But the no, 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 is, they'd still be doing them. No, 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 they'd still be doing them. It would just be well, just, such a different value, right? Point. And then what will happen is those players that those levels will be the farm system for the better schools. Because if I'm Oregon, I need a wide receiver, and I look at a school that can't afford to. Mm -hmm. pay what I can pay and they oh mm -hmm. man that guy's good we missed mm -hmm. him scoop him up boom so now you get back to my earlier comments from very early in the podcast when I referenced the 2030s and I wasn't being <laughs> facetious because how does the Pac-12 as a conference the conference of champions <laughs> that's doing their air name quotes, folks he's doing air quotes folks. but that's their identity Mm -hmm. How do they compete in this marketplace when equivalency sports, and I'm not even going to go down that road because we could be here all day, but there's going to be changes there that are long overdue and et cetera, but that's an increased cost burden to the schools, all right, well, and good, and, and to the benefit of the athletes, but nevertheless. And then in an NIL space where increasingly those numbers have to be rather enormous, how does the Pac-12 compete in these marketplaces when they have increased, relatively speaking, higher liabilities than some of their peer conferences with less assets and revenue streams than many of their peer conferences. That's a hard spot to be in. And outside of Oregon and USC, 
I'm not sure how many members of the Pac-12 can really fight and contend in that space. I'm not sure. But I will know that, like I say, as I know why the 2030s, because when we know what the Big Ten's new media deal is, probably sometime around the 2032 or 2036 range, I would imagine, because that just happens to be when the SECs and ACCs deals are up. If everybody's deals end around the same time, I think that's when you could see some invitations be extended uh, to expanded conferences and and have those, as Aaron has alluded to multiple times now, <laughs> a upper echelon of, say, 40 teams, even within the Power 5 now of 65, 66 teams. Well, maybe that beces two 20-team te- conferences called the exactly. Big Ten and the SEC. Or four 10-team conferences. You play every team once. You have some cross-divisions. Boom. Just, I mean, we already know that there's only, you know, 40 schools that are ever going to be in the mix ever, even the schools who are in the mix every five or six years. So let's just cut the fat and get on with it. So what does that mean to, like I say, to outside of Oregon? What does that mean to the other schools? Like to Oregon State? To Oregon State, State, to Washington State, to Cal, to UCLA. they They go into a different realm of football. They go into another tier of football. And if Oregon um, doesn't play any of those teams as much, or maybe they only plays, maybe they still play Oregon State, but they play you're not, got three non You got three non-conference games. What is, in four? 2035, when, I'm, when, when you're retired and we're on a podcast in, in the metaverse, uh, and we're debating the Big Ten football schedule of 2035, and Oregon is playing, uh, you know, the powers that be. But I'm, doing, but I'm doing the math. Am I doing, I'm doing the math here. Am I retired? I might be. Go ahead. Close enough. <laughs> I was like, do, I, was like, do I wasn't wishing you away, but you know, I figured, you know, 15 years make, from now, it's make, possible. But you know what I'm saying. But in 20, so in 2037, let's bump it a couple of years. To be <laughs> no, extra, I think you're, extra you're right. I think you're right. There you go. Unless so I 2037, just, to bo- just to bug you, Aaron Fentress <laughs> on the on the on a with, with a mai tai and a, a drink with an umbrella in it, and we're debating the Big Ten football <laughs> schedule of 2037 when Oregon is playing Michigan and Ohio State, uh, and everybody and and uh, who else? Who else from the Pac-12 is getting an invite besides Oregon and USC? I think UW could step up in that in that realm, and I think if UCLA's boost, you know, their fan base and the boosters want to, I think UCLA has enough, should have enough people with deep enough pockets to make it viable. After that, I don't know. Cal, and Cal, well, Cal, Cal, Cal people just don't care enough about football, but. There's, you know, there's, no, there's definitely a lot of rich people that have come out stop, of Cal stop. and Stanford. Oh my God, right? I would say the prop. The, the politics of UCLA and Cal make that very complicated. Stanford, I think the Big Ten would want it, but it yeah. also gets complicated. I think UCLA, because of the politics of Cal, could be in a really tough bind, but UCLA and Arizona could be in a fight to the death to be that last one. And if you go to 36, you know, Notre Dame is time at the ACC, but they're going to be locked in and behind for a while. And if TV numbers start getting totally bananas, if I'm Kevin Warren, I am trying to position my, my conference best for when the day arrives to offer whoever the successor to Jack Swarbrick is in 2030-something to come on over and play in the Midwest and become a de facto member. Because if I'm trying to form a 20-team league, I'll take five from the West, Oregon, Washington, Stanford, USC, and then either UCLA or Arizona, and I don't really care if I'm Kevin Warren. Either way, whatever. And then if I can't get Notre Dame, then I take the other one from UCLA and Arizona. And if I can get Notre Dame, then 
there you have it. Then the loser is the loser. But I try to get to a 20-team league. Then I play, you know, 10, nine, 10 conference games and protect, you know, however many rivalries and rotate my way through, etc. And play a non-conference game. So uh, here's the know, ultimate... Play a, play a 10 or 11, 11, 11, 11 game uh, league schedule, play one game against the SEC and let the Big Ten and the SEC run all Here's the, the ultimate sports. solution to all of this, right? <laughs> I'm going to solve it all right now. I'm going to solve it. Well, we know you as the commissioner would be right the solution now. to all of it. Really. One, yeah. you drop the three-year requirement with the NFL. Because this is all about making money. So you let players be one and done. And you let NFL teams expand their rosters to where – they can basically have almost, I mean, they have 10 practice squad guys anyway. Expand it to 20. It's grown. It's like, it's is closer it, to, I is think it's 16, 16 already? now. I remember it was only like eight or something. They expanded it due to COVID oh, okay. and they kept it. Yeah. At yeah, 16, 16 or 18. Yeah. So you, you have places, okay, this kid's not ready, but we're going to draft him. We're going to give him some money. And we're going to develop him. And then we'll call him up when he's ready or we'll figure out what we're going to do with him. Uh, and you can develop them yourself within your own system. Maybe there ends up being a true minor league football thing, although I don't like that because there's too much risk of injury. Like, am I going to send my second-round pick to get some seasoning in a minor league football game? No, I'm probably not going to do that. I'm going to control his development where I am. And so that way, we're not messing around making these kids stay in college for three years chasing money. They're either one and done or maybe even zero and done, and then college football can go back to being what it should be about, you can still have some, like to me, you just increase the scholarship amount. Like give, make the scholarships bigger. That was always my thing, not the NIL thing. Make the scholarships bigger. So the guy, so the kid is not, so maybe like for Oregon, you know, go back in time, someone like a Keenan Lowe, who never ever had a chance to make it in the NFL, but he was an Oregon guy. He was going to be there four years. He played his ass off. He is going to be happy playing at Oregon and getting a scholarship and graduating and maybe getting a bigger scholarship because there's money to be had. And just go back to that world and let all these kids who want to ditch their team after one year and go chase money across the country, who are just going to alienate the fan base who's really attached to their program, by the way, and just let them go pro and go away. Go. Just like they did in basketball. Done. <laughs> a lot of things, a lot of things that you say there, I'm not necessarily against certain certain aspects of it, but the overarching nature of it, though, is ultimately to me on all these issues that we're talking about. But to what you just hit on a lot there with the professionalism aspect of of the college sport, I it, to me it boils down to adapt or die with it and embrace it. I think for too long, for far too long. There has been a very paternalistic view internally and externally within the system and within the fan bases of college sports. Not any one fan base. I'm not saying this is unique to Oregon or unique to the Pac-12 or anything. This is just college sports as a whole. A very paternalistic view because, again, how do we refer to them? Student athletes. As a system. I never use the Student term. Student athletes? I, I, if I do, I usually literally bite my tongue. No, I hate that term too. I always say players or college athletes, kids. Oh, oh this kid, that kid. Th- 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 and that's mainly a thing because it's just, well, I'm older than, so therefore anybody younger than me is a kid. But then it becomes really, like I say, paternalistic. They are kids, though. And guess they what? Are kids, though. Yes. Are they? Not to the legal definition, they're not. I mean, it's time to start to shake that free, man. 
their their brains aren't fully developed. <laughs> Three quarters of them are not allowed to buy alcohol. That's or a sixty percent, depending on which. Uh, year I don't know. In. I I look back at myself at eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and I very much it's, see a kid. That's not the point, though. It's a matter of saying, but it, the whole idea of like, well, the economic aspects and when they have the ability. Oh to yeah, that. No, I agree with you on that. that. I mean, fourteen-year-old tennis players well, make that's like, and, well, hey, look. Yeah, no, I'm with you. But you just had Kalani Sataki of BYU earlier this offseason when we're talking about all this NIL stuff and scheduling. And by the way, they're on Oregon schedule and they're joining the Big 12 and realignment and how many games, all these things we're just talking about for the last hour. Uh, you know, there you go. Suggest he doesn't think a, a young person should have that much money. Oh, well, I mean, I, I think you, you can make the, the argument about how they are going to handle that money. Are they going to blow it? My thing would be not that you. No, no, but that's I, paternalistic. Yeah, I, that's okay, their problem. Uh, okay, here's what I would say. I, I'm not saying I'm that's not their saying problem. Pay them the money. I'm saying that there. You would hope that they have people in their life who can offer oversight to how they use that money because you're just going to light it on fire and blow. You it. Hope so. so. I think there should be. You know, but you hope so. at the end of the day, yeah. If I mean, yeah, we we agree. If you know, if Marcus Mariota was here, what was that guy's value to the Oregon football program? Five million a year. If you went back in time and said. Okay, Phil Knight, this is what's going to happen with Marcus Murray in the next three years. You're in contend for the national championship every year. He's going to win the Heisman and be the number two pick in the draft. Five million a year for you right now, or will you race him and you're going to go with Jeff Lockie? Would Phil Knight write that check if he knew in advance what was coming? He probably would. I mean, if he's going to pay these coaches they keep bringing in, three, four, five million dollars because of what? Not having done anything as a head coach ever. I'd pay Marcus first. <laughs> And then hire any old coach. So, yeah, I mean, I, to me, the money's there for them. They they are worth it. So, yeah, they should have it. But his, I think I would hope his point is, okay, but someone be there to help that kid manage living in a world where you have that kind of money. Well, that, well, right. But the point is, is that. You can't control that. You, from, you can't yeah. say, you can't, you can't yeah. say, right. But you can't say, I don't think a young person should have that yeah, money. It's ridiculous. You can have we that give, money in the first give, place. We give it to Who are you? And why should, why should you have your money? Why should you have your money? We give it to We give it to tennis players. We give it to, yeah, it's bullshit. I agree. Exactly. exactly. If yeah, the market calls for it, the market calls for it. Bottom line. They're all free market capitalists when it's their money. When it's somebody else's money, that's the problem. So again, you know, hey, look, if the player can get Gary Coleman made $30 million. They have all the systems of the wherewithal. Right. You hope that they have all the, the, the support systems around them. And uh, again, managers, they talk about the tax fallout and all oh, they're going to receive 1099s. So oh, well. I, again, this is their problem. Exactly. If they want to engage in the space as legal adults and engage in something where you receive compensation, yes, you have to pay taxes. Yes, you do. That's, that's what accountants are Guess for. Guess what? That's Them's what the breaks. Like, it, like and, and if they work the job, which they've always been able to do, as a, as a college athlete, since the foundation of the NCAA, you could still work an outside they, job, having unrelated to anything. Just, really? I thought Fools Rise Scholarship kids couldn't have jobs. In this. You couldn't work at the pizza shop? I thought they couldn't. No. Well, yeah, no. you could. Go back 20 years ago. It was uh, Mario Williams, from when he was at NC State, was working okay. at Subway. Now we're going to need to get a sponsorship. <laughs> we need an NIL sponsorship for something. Just for mentioning that, we should each get a free sandwich. Uh, but no, like, <laughs> yeah, we should get a free, yeah. Uh, but point is, is like, there was yeah. nothing stopping it. And guess what? He had to pay taxes when he was, when, when you work a regular no, job. So again, oh, well, that's the, you know, because they have to pay taxes or because, oh, yes. they don't know about doing that. That's their problem. That's their burden. If they can't solve it, they're a legal adult. That's their issue. 
this is where I talk about the paternalism aspects. I'm not saying it's a a, a, a bad position from a uh, you shouldn't have the concern. I'm saying that we need to shake ourselves free systematically, those inside the system and outside observers from this whole position in the first place that, oh, they're not going to be responsible with it. They don't deserve it. They haven't proven it. This is going to ruin my experience because I'm loyal to the school, but they're going to go out and do it. No, I, Again, I this is what markets right. are going to dictate. Back when I've said this before, back, back so when Mike Pilate made 500K or whatever it was, you know, to me, expand the scholarships. Once coaches started making three, four, five, ten, twelve million dollars, like then, and ads are making a million dollars, and coordinators are making some coordinators are making one, two, three million. Jim Levitt came here and basically worked Oregon for five point four million dollars, whatever, over two years because of the buyout, et cetera. At that point, it's just stupid. There's that much money out there. The players need to make money. Period. I just don't like the system. I don't think you necessarily like it. But at the end of the day, like you said, the money is there. The player is. The player has established a market value that someone's willing to pay him. If he wants to take the money and do like the Joker and, and Batman's Dark Knight and light it on fire and say it was never about the money, that's his prerogative. Yeah. 100%. 100%. I, mean, I, I wouldn't do right. it. If I, I would do it. If there's cautionary you know, tales down okay. the line about so-and-so made $8 million playing college football and, and blew it and is broke by age 26, right. and, then oh, well, he's broke oh, by age 26. But guess what? He right. was broke at age 19 when he was playing for you. If you did, if you didn't yeah. get the NILs, you were fine with him being broke at 19, but now you're going to cry because he might be broke by 25 because he wasted all this money that he earned. Shut the hell up with that nonsense. I'm with you 100%. Yeah. Exactly. And ultimately, look. Oh, and that NIL deal is again their their NIL deal is cheating, and and it doesn't. Uh, it's not transparent enough, and isn't for real value, and it's totally out of the marketplace. Guess what? You can't legislate an outside third party business from making a bad deal. So because you say it's a bad deal that's out of market and not in line with the actual work that's being required for NIL purposes, which is what everybody's attacking John Ruiz, who's the only you know he's the face of this whole issue at Miami, because it's been the most in the public sphere, which again is good and bad to be had with that. But he's the guy being attacked for it. Okay, but guess what? You can't legislate what he does with his money and his businesses. If he says it's a good value to him, and you say, well, that's not commiserate with the level of return you're it's getting. It's his money. Says who? It's like it's his money. <clears throat> if he wants to light it on fire because he wants to see Miami athletics be Hello? really good, guess what? Hello? That's his prerogative. Hey, I'm with you. He can do that. When, remember, if he wants to pay every single athlete at Miami a million dollars a head just to do it and then tweet out a couple of things for his businesses and says, I got what I came for, guess what? That's the system. He can do it. So you didn't yet That's try and change Okay. Like, you know, oh, well, I don't like it because he's just doing things that are completely nuts. Well, find yourself somebody who's philanthropic, who well, feels no, or, like or they're really can, dedicated to your system, your school, who's really nuts with their money. But until you, you have the them, you know. You could argue, you could argue to have to do different what? rules to help mitigate some of that. Well, there could be. Well, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess it would be kind of hilarious to say this because even if you set a nil cap, well, there when there wasn't nils, people were circumventing that anyway, right? So it's not going to matter. Exactly. So, okay, we signed someone's. We signed someone to five hundred k, yeah. but we're going to give them a hundred. You know, we're giving eight hundred k more under the table to their grandma. Anyway, it's all jacked up. Exactly. We'll see where it goes. So here we are. We thought on this Wednesday in early June that we wouldn't have anything <laughs> well, to talk about. I, I think and managed to have probably the I longest podcast of our, uh, of our year. So. Together, we could talk about anything forever. <laughs> We've managed to, uh, you know, so here we are. Minutes talking later. season and everything else. We, we On a policy-heavy uh, podcast, we managed to cover all it our works. bases. So with that, uh, we will uh, bid you folks adieu. We appreciate everybody for listening, as always. 
we will see you folks uh, in the uh, hopefully not too distant future, but uh, we will probably be taking a little bit of a, a reprieve here for a portion of the summer. Again, I mentioned Pac-12 Football Media Day. That'll be in later July. Uh, some of the other conferences will be the week before and what have you. So there'll still be plenty to come on Oregon Live uh, for sure and in the Oregonian. So always check that out again. I'm going to have stuff today, tomorrow, next week. We got, again, it's never going to stop. Uh, but in terms of, you know, Outside of something truly seismic from a personnel standpoint or whatever, a lot of this stuff is still going to be kind of in the weeds on policy and stuff. But it does matter to Oregon, to Oregon State, to the Pac-12, you name it. So and keep an eye out there. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, make sure to do so wherever you get your podcast. That way you get it right in your feed and make it easy for listening purposes. And you make sure to give us a five-star like, review, etc., etc., and subscribe so that way it makes things uh, easier for us to uh, get in front of more people as well. So with that... We bid you folks adieu here, uh, hopefully for the not-too-distant future. We'll see you again soon. Uh, I'm James Kreppel, and he is Aaron Fentress, and uh, enjoy your summer, everybody. Peace.